0: <clears throat> Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water. Jack fell down and broke his crown, and Jill came tumbling after. What is that? We all know it. It's a nursery rhyme, right? We've grown up, we've heard it, it's stuck in our heads. Even if we wanted to get rid of it, we couldn't. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall, right? And it just, it's just locked in there. There's a nursery rhymes we hear when we're kids. They stick in our heads and they don't really even make a lot of sense at times, but there they are. What about this? Did you hear about the guy who lost his left arm and his left leg in a car crash? Don't worry, he's all right now. Good, right? What is that? That's, that's a, a joke. It's a lame joke, but it's a joke. Actually, it would be lame if he lost his legs, but. And again, just just got to keep wheeling them out this morning. Did you hear that? Uh, diarrhea is hereditary; it runs in your genes. Oh, that's that's those those are jokes. They're different to nursery rhymes. They're they're, they're they're different in the way that they're told, and they have at the end a punchline, right? It's just it's it's different. What about the hare and the tortoise? All right, we all know this story growing up. The The hare challenges the tortoise to a race because he wants to show how fast he is and how slow the tortoise is. And they take off and the hare is out, right? And out so far in front that he thinks, I can stop and have a nap and still win this race. And so he does, right? And the tortoise is just slowly and steadily going along and it goes past the hare, almost to the finish line. The hare wakes up, realizes, oh my goodness, I've slept too long, and sprints after the tortoise, but it's too late. The tortoise crosses the line first, right? We all know that story. What is that? That's a parable, right? That's, that's actually a, a parable because unlike uh, the nursery rhyme, which is just a nice little story that doesn't really have any meaning, unlike a joke that has a punchline that tells you what it's all about... The hare and the tortoise doesn't actually tell you the meaning of the hare and the tortoise. You have to figure it out. The listener has to listen really well, understand the clues and the context, and then make a decision about what this parable means, right? And so you could come up with all sorts of meanings for the hare and the tortoise. Does it mean that you shouldn't be arrogant like the hare? Does it mean that if you're slow and steady, you will win the race, Does it mean that going slow and steady is better than going fast and then resting? I don't know. The the story doesn't actually tell us the meaning, and that's what parables do. They give you a story, but they don't tell you the meaning on the surface. You have to dig, and you have to make decisions. Well, we're starting a series, if you haven't seen on the screen, about the parables of Jesus. And Jesus is the master teacher, And He teaches in parables. And today we're going to look at a parable in Matthew 13. And Jesus is going to help us answer a question that we've all asked at one stage in our life. We've all wrestled with this at one stage in our life. We'll probably continue to wrestle with after we've even listened to and taught the parable. Some of us have agonized over this question. We've cried over this question. We've prayed over this question maybe even got angry about this question. And the question is, how come some people accept and believe the gospel and others don't? Why is that? Why is it that you can take two people, same background, maybe even from the same family, grew up with the same uh, understanding and teaching opportunities, education, education, And you can tell them the gospel, and one will respond, and one won't. Why is that? Jesus tells us a parable in Matthew 13 to help explain what is going to go on when people hear the gospel. Now, before we turn to Matthew 13, let me catch you up on the book of Matthew, because like I said, parables are really important to see in their context. If you take them out of their context, you'll miss the meaning right? And parables get taken out of their context all the time and meaning gets drawn from them that was never meant to be drawn from them. And so you have to look at the parable in its context and what is going on where they're found. Now, this is found in Matthew 13, right? So there's 12 chapters that have gone on before we get to this, right? So we need to see what Matthew is doing in his book and account of Jesus in order to understand exactly what Jesus is saying in Matthew 13. So let me catch you up little bit in the book of Matthew. Now, Matthew 1, 2, and 3. It's the genealogy of, of Jesus, it's the birth narrative of Jesus, it's John the Baptist preparing the way before Jesus begins his ministry. Okay, and in those sections there's all these things that are going on that Matthew is showing that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament Messiah that Israel was waiting for. Right, so you'll see all these things that happen in Jesus's life. And then he'll quote an Old Testament passage showing you that Jesus is doing all these things that the Old Testament told us that the Messiah would do. All right, So that's chapters 1, 2, and 3. In chapter 4, he goes into the wilderness and he's tempted by the devil and he passes the test. Okay, So he's better than Adam. He's what's going to be called the second Adam because he's the one that goes through the testing and the temptation and he doesn't fall like the rest of humanity. In chapters 5, 6 and 7, we have the longest sermon that Jesus preaches in Matthew, which is called the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up on a mountaintop, he speaks to the crowds and what does he tell them in this? He tells them, I am the one you've been waiting for. And he goes and references the Old Testament a bunch of times, but really at the core of his message is, you if you want to get into the kingdom of heaven, you have to have 100% righteousness. You have to be righteous to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes about telling people and showing people that actually your righteousness is not going to get you into the kingdom of heaven on your own merits. And he, th- he says things like, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you know, you won't get in. Um, and then he goes through Old Testament laws that, you know, nobody can live up to. Like, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, right, and all the guys are like, okay, I'm out. Uh, if you've ever had hatred towards anybody, you're out. Okay, so then everybody's out and you just think, okay, we're all in trouble, right? And that's part of what Jesus is helping us see, is that if we're on our own merits to get into the kingdom of heaven, we've got no chance. But then he says, if you ask, it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. What's he saying? He's saying, I have the righteousness of of God that you're looking for and I'll give it to you but you have to ask. You have to humble yourself, admit that you are going to fall short and ask me for my forgiveness and I will grant that to you because I love you. That's the Sermon on the Mount in two minutes, five, six and seven. Well, in 8 and 9, Jesus does one miracle after the next, right? One miracle after the next. What's he doing? He's proving again that he is the Messiah that the uh, Old Testament anticipated. And so you see that the blind now see and the lame walk and the dead come back to life. All of these things were anticipated in the Old Testament by the prophets that there would be one to come who would do this. And Jesus is doing it, right? In these small little batches, proving, I am the Messiah. That's chapters 8 and And 9. In chapter 10, he sends out his disciples, right? And he gets to 12 and he says, Go out, where? Not to all the world, not to all the nations. He says, Go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles. He says it in chapter 10, those exact words. Why? Because Israel was meant to respond to the Messiah first and foremost. They were the ones that had the Old Testament, the covenant, the prophets. And they were meant to see that they had a Messiah and Jesus was that Messiah. So he sends his 12 out. Go tell them the kingdom of heaven is near. Go tell them the message of the, the Sermon on the Mount. Do miracles in front of them to prove that the kingdom is near. And what happens? They reject. And you hear these woes over and over to these cities that do not repent, that do not believe Jesus to be the Messiah. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. That's chapters 10 and 11. And then we get to 12. And Jesus is before a man who is demon-possessed on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees are watching, the leaders of Israel, the, 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 the religious elite who lead the nation before God, and they're watching to see if he'll heal him. And what does Jesus do? He takes mercy on the man, and he heals him. And what do the Pharisees conclude about Jesus? He does this by the power of the prince of demons. That's what they say. And they say, you aren't from God, you're actually from the devil. That is their conclusion about Jesus as their Messiah. And so Israel rejects Jesus as the Messiah in chapter 12. They dismiss him. And so Jesus decides, all right, Israel, if you won't go to the Gentiles, if you won't believe that I am Messiah and fulfill what you were meant to do, I'll go to the Gentiles myself. And I'm going to do it through a remnant of 12 ragtag, pretty average, fishermen, everyday blue-collar guys who can barely understand what I'm talking about half the time, who get it wrong over and over, but I will teach them and anyone else who comes to believe in me about the kingdom of heaven. And Israel, you will be put to the side. But the message will go out and the kingdom of heaven will go forward and it will go to the Gentiles, but it will go through a new means, a means that is made up of both Jew, the remnant and Gentile, and it will be known as the church. And this church will not be stopped. This church will take the message of Messiah, the message that there is one who can save, there is one who gives entrance into the kingdom of heaven, and it will take it not just to Jerusalem, not just to Judea, not just to Samaria, but to the outer parts of the earth, even to Toowoomba, Queensland, Australia. And so when we get to chapter 13... Jesus is going to start teaching in parables, parables. Why does He do this? The disciples have the same question. In fact, they go straight to Jesus and say, why are you teaching in parables? Verse 11, chapter 13, Jesus tells them, Because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Jesus says, to those who have come to an understanding and accepted me, they will understand the parables and they will be given the understanding. But to those who reject, it will remain unknown. It will not be given to them. You see, there is a secret of the kingdom of heaven the secret in the Greek, it's the word mysteria, and it's where we get the idea of the word mystery from. right? Jesus says there's a mystery about the kingdom of heaven. This doesn't mean it can't be known. The word here actually has this idea that it was once not known, but now it has been made known, and Jesus is making it known to these guys, but they couldn't have known it before. It was in the Old Testament that that, uh, the that the message of Messiah would go to the Gentiles, but through the church, and this idea of Jew and Gentile combined was a mystery, and Jesus is now revealing it to those who want to hear. And so before Jesus, as He teaches this parable, He's on a boat, There, are on the land, there's obviously a lot of people, there's so many that He has to get into the boat to be able to speak to them and not be overcrowded. There will be amongst the crowd those who have accepted Jesus and those who have rejected Jesus. And so, he speaks to them in parables, so that those who accept might understand and those who reject might not. And then he says this in verse 12, "'Whoever has, uh, whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance.'" Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken away from them. This is why I speak to them in parables. And so we see those who understand and grasp the kingdom of God, it will just keep going and growing and growing and getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And those who reject won't even keep what they were given. You see, the parable has great meaning. Within it, but you have to mine for it, you have to dig for it. It contains truth, but it isn't obvious on the surface. The word parable in, in a verb form means to throw beside, and it's where that we get this idea of parallel f- from. It, it runs next to the truth, side by side, revealing something about, it, but never actually explicitly within the parable telling you. You see, to, to understand it, you have to go after it. You have to seek it. You have to want to know what it means. You're with me so far? So, let's look at the parable. Matthew 13. You've all probably heard this if you've grown up in church. I was reminded yesterday by my, my mother that I was in grade 2 and I, I did a performance about the uh, the parable of the sower. I blocked it out for a reason, but uh, worked its way back in. So, let's read the parable, and uh, then we're going to read Jesus' explanation of it. Chapter 13, verse 1. "'That same day Jesus went out of the house and sat by the lake. Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat in it, while all the people stood on the shore.' "'Then he told them many things in parables, saying, "'A farmer went out to sow his seed, and he scattered the seed. "'Some fell along the path, and birds came and ate it up. "'Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. "'It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. "'But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched, "'and they withered because they had no root. "'Other seed fell among the thorns, which grew up and choked the plants.' Still other seed fell on the good soil where it produced a crop a hundred, sixty or thirty times that was sown. Whoever has ears, let him hear. Strange way to end a parable, isn't it? You see, you might expect that Jesus said, now, the reason I tell you this is, or the way that you should now go is... But he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, in light of this truth, blah, blah, blah. just whoever has ears, let him hear. So what does it mean? Thankfully, the Jesus, uh, Jesus' disciples are curious. They seek. They go after. There is a tickling. And so they go up to Jesus and say, what does the parable mean? And aren't we glad they did? Verse 18, Jesus is going to explain it. Listen to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. The seed falling among the thorns refers to someone who hears the word, but the worries of this life and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, making it unfruitful. But the seed falling on the good soil refers to someone who hears the word and understands it. This is the one who produces a crop, yielding a hundred, sixty, or thirty times what was sown. Let's look at what's constant through this parable. The sower sows seed. It's the same seed on every soil. There's no difference in the seed. And the seed has potential to bring life. Have you ever thought about that? This tiny little grain in the right conditions can bring about this massive tree. All the life that is needed for that tree is found in that tiny piece of grain, if it's in the right conditions. And all the seed lands on soil, they all land on soil, and all of the soil hears the message, it says that over and over. They, they heard the message. So, what makes the difference that only one of the seeds goes on to bear fruit and multiply? It is the state of the soil that the seed lands that determines its result. So, what is the seed? What is the seed that Jesus is referring to? In verse 19, he tells us, right? The seed is the word of the kingdom. What's the word of the kingdom? Well, that's when you go back to Jesus preaching the sermon on the mount. It is the gospel. That there is a kingdom to come, the kingdom of heaven. Jesus, the righteous king, will rule in that. And you can enter through him. If you humble yourself, repent of your sins and believe in His righteousness and sacrifice that He will go to the cross for. That is the word of the kingdom. Let's take a closer look at the four soils and break them down. The first soil that we read, it falls among the path. Now, this ground of the path would be hard. As people are repetitively walking over the same track, over and over, and foot traffic, as it continues to go over, it compacts the soil. It becomes hard. This is the person who might be described as hard-hearted. They say things like, religion, it's great for others. I have no need of it. Happy for you to believe, do your thing, but it's not for me. not for me. I don't need those fairy tales or those feel-good stories. I am fine. It is not for me. They don't understand it. They don't see a need for it. And Jesus says that the devil comes and takes away even that which was sown to begin with. And so they discard it. The enemy enforces that rejection. And you know people like this, or you've seen people like this, where you look at their life, and they make a mess of it, and you just think, if you turned to the Lord, and you truly understood the gospel, you would, your life would change dramatically, and He would take what you have made into a mess, and He would build it into something beautiful. If only you believed, if only you understood, if only you trusted, but they don't. It's like it's a foreign concept or even an idea to, to embrace something else, even though they are making a mess of their own way. They are hard-hearted and they do not understand. The second soil is that which is rocky. And Jesus says that it represents those who receive the word with joy. They initially, they love the message of the gospel, but alas, when trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. This is the person that when there's a little bit of pressure applied, they drop Christianity and the gospel as quickly as they picked it up. It's normally somebody who sees the gospel as something that can help them make, their life go the way they want it to go. And somehow Jesus can fit into those plans and they maneuver him and the gospel into a way that suits them. But when it doesn't, they're no longer interested. And it says here that it's when, when the trouble comes. And Christ said that you will have trouble. And it's not worth it to them. They do a trade-off of, is it worth my safety, my popularity, my reputation, the ridicule? And they say, no, it's not. The third soil is that which was thrown amongst the thorns. And Jesus says, this soil represents those who hear the word, but they're choked out by the worries of this world and the deceitfulness of wealth. If the first soil was hard-hearted, the second soil is faint-hearted, and the third soil is half-hearted. There's two ways here that Jesus talks about being unfruitful. The first cause is that there's, there are concern about the worries of this life. And you think about who Jesus is talking to here in, in front of the crowd. And one thing that is constant through all of humanity is there's been worries. There's been pressures, there's been anxiety. And he's sitting in front of a fairly uh, simple, life kind of people agrarian sort of society. He's in a boat, a lot of fishermen, that's their trade, that's their living. They're probably wondering where their next meal's coming from. And the kids, they're starting to outgrow their clothes and they're getting worn out and the fishing nets are starting to break and they'll need new ones of those and the boat needs a repair and the Romans are threatening to come and squash them. they had worries, they had anxieties. And we have them too and they're just different. Different things that are going on that we think about, they consume us. I mean, anxiety, I don't know if it's ever been higher. There seems to be plenty of things to be anxious about. We live in a, in a very connected world that information moves so quickly that you barely get your, your head around the, the current anxiety before the next one comes along. And it's, I mean, it, it's, it's wonderful having access to so much information, but it, it comes at a price at times as well. And here's some things that we're anxious about or some of us are anxious about. I mean, it seems like we're heading into a recession. Unemployment's going to rise. Inflation's still bad. Interest rates keep rising. Real estate, it's almost impossible to get into the market now. Other markets financially are unstable. Education seems to be going down the drain in the universities, in the schools. Politics has become a pleasing popularity contest. Morality all seems to have collapsed. The most powerful man on the planet, President of the United States, seemed to be a ventriloquist doll. There's a Russia, oh, there's a Russia, there's a war, there is a Russia, there's a war going on between Russia and Ukraine, and it just keeps threatening to escalate and get bigger, and other countries dragged in, and where's that going to end? We're only another lab leak away from another pandemic or somebody biting a bat or whatever happened. I don't know. You know, there's all sorts of theories about how that started, but we're only, you know, that that could be just around the corner. They keep telling us there's another one. Diet Coke causes cancer. Did you know that? I heard that. Climate change is destroying the world. Social media just produces the most antisocial behavior Yet we can't seem to live without it anymore. I mean, those are just things that aren't even necessarily personal to our own lives. Those are just things that are going on that we have to think about and worry about and be stressed about and be anxious about. And then there's personal things about, like, you know, singles you worry about, am I ever going to get married? Am I ever going to find that person? Will I live the rest of my days by myself? Marrieds are wondering, will I ever get some time to myself? Introverts, you worry about speaking to another human in a public place. Extroverts, you worry about being by yourself for five minutes in case a deep thought enters your mind. (laughs) We worry about our parents, what do we look like, what do they think about us, will we make a mistake? Are they happy with this, are they not happy with that? We're anxious about our health, we're anxious about being anxious... Anxious about our sermon, anxious about the haircut I just got, are they looking at it? Do they know I'm balding? What can I do? I can't do anything about it. I mean, I sat in front of the hairdresser Thursday, I think it was Friday or something like that, and I told her what I want or whatever. And she's halfway through and I'm getting tense. I'm like, is she gonna stuff this up? You know, you're always sitting there wondering, what is this going to look like? And then I just thought, who cares? What's the difference between a bad haircut and a good haircut? two weeks, right? And I just thought, you know what? She shaves me bald, so be it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't really matter in the scheme of things. We're a worried world. We get sidetracked and derailed by things that are out of our control most of the time, things that ultimately don't matter. And we think if we have more information about those things, that will help us control it, understand it, manage it, actually just makes it harder to manage. There's so much more to think about and figure out, and we can't. We need someone who holds it all together, who knows what's coming, who we can trust and depend on. We need someone who knows exactly where we're going, and how to get us there. We need a kingdom, and a good king. That's the first way that we're unfruitful. The second is the deceitfulness of wealth. This is the group of people, they hear the gospel, happy to play the game, until it interferes too much with their wealth building, the desire for money, to accumulate, to have more. They put their hope, they put their heart into possessions and wealth and bank accounts and real estate and building portfolios. So much so that there is no room for the kingdom of God, to work in their life. That space is overcrowded. It has choked out the good news of the gospel. It is crazy what we will do for money. And I'm not saying money is evil, because it's not, it doesn't say that. We need it, we use it, it's a resource, it's part of the world that we live in. That's not what... I'm saying saying it's crazy what we will do for it. We'll steal it. We'll break promises for it. We'll ruin friendships over it. Some will even kill for it. Our our prisons are full of people who have done things for money that they would never have done otherwise because it is lucrative. It It has a pull on us. It is deceitful. And so we need to be careful with our relationship with money. Some, Jesus says, will be so deceived by the allure of money that they will even reject eternal salvation. Jesus says, there's no room for this dualistic kind of discipleship to me. You can't have two masters, you can, you can only worship one. And in the kingdom, there's only one king. It's Jesus. And and the money that you're given, the money that we have, it's a resource that we're given to use accordingly to build into and invest into that kingdom. So, please be careful with your money, with your relationship to money, your desires for money, the allure of money. Please be careful. It is known to choke out the fruit of the seed of the kingdom of heaven. Well, there is one soil left, and it's the good soil. It not only hears the word like all the others, but the difference is that it says in verse 23 that it understands it. The penny drops. The the long for something more than this world can offer is realized. The conviction of sin and the falling short is realized. The need for grace understood. The repentance of the old way of doing things actualized. Belief in Jesus, perfect righteousness, comprehended. The forgiveness of sin, requested. The righteousness of Christ, imputed. The identification of son or daughter in the kingdom, bestowed. Personal relationship with the Father, restored. Spirit of God, indwelled. The working out of the kingdom of God in one's life and the production of fruit, guaranteed. Guaranteed. And the kingdom just keeps working its way out in those who believe. They become more patient, more loving, more kind, not overnight, but over a long period of time. As they see Christ more clearly and walk closer and closer to Him, they become more and more the person that God has created them to be in relationship with Him. I love the Pete quote of Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. You cannot stop the kingdom working through the good soil to produce fruit. We're not the finished article, but one day, one day we will be. And it will be because of Christ and the work that He has done. The first soil was hard-hearted, the second soil faint-hearted, the third half-hearted, the fourth, the good soil, is soft-hearted. It's ready to receive. It's ready to listen. It is eager to obey. That's the parable. You know what this parable is? parable, it's really a value test. Each one of these soils, each one of these people that represent the soils, they made a value judgment about what was more important to them. The first soil, they heard the gospel, they decided it was not valuable at all. In fact, it didn't stack up even remotely close. To anything that would be important. The second soil determined it would be helpful, but not with the trouble that it might come with. The third soil weighed it up against other things like things that they were worried about, anxious about, and determined that those things needed more of their time and energy and efforts, and that, that the, the seed would not help. They also weighed it up against the money and the wealth that they might lose out on if they if they said yes to the seed. And they determined again that the kingdom of heaven it was inferior. But the fourth soil it it weighed it up. It made a value judgment. And it reckoned that there was nothing else in this life that was more important, nothing not worth going through or giving up, nothing more lovely than being in the kingdom with King Jesus bearing fruit for the rest of their life. You see, we always choose that which seems best to us. We always choose That which seems best to us. And I don't mean we always are selfish, it's not always what we want, we always choose that which seems best to us. This means sometimes we choose things that we don't want to do, things that are hard. You say, what about people who sacrifice their own life for others? They did a value judgment and they deemed that it would be best for them to lay their own life down for the benefit of somebody else. In everything we do, we do value judgments and we always choose that which which seems best to us. Karen and I, that's my wife, have... uh, recently taken up gardening that means we're getting old and um next will be you know world war ii history and all those sorts of things that you do when you get old and um graham you'd be into that wouldn't you yeah actually didn't you fight in world war one just kidding thank you for your service Anyway, we've started taking up gardening, and uh, our backyard has got no gardening out it. you know, it was just, there was nothing there. Anyway, so we decided, you know, why don't we plant some fruit, um, a fruit tree, why don't we plant some vegetables, some herbs, those sorts of things, and so we got a little portable garden bed on wheels from Bunnings, and that way we could, you know, wheel it around, make sure if it was the frost coming, we could bring it inside, blah, blah. Anyway, it's only small. It's, you know, maybe maybe this big. And I didn't realise when we we're planting that um, you, you don't plant judging by the size of what it is. You judge, you, you plant it judging by the size of what it will be. And so you have to you have to distance your plants out, right? You know, it tells you on the tag. It's like plant 50 centimetres apart or 30 centimetres apart, and it's going to grow this high. and you're Like, oh okay. As you can see, I'm a rookie. And um, so we we bought all this stuff, these plants and these seedlings, and. We've got this tiny garden bed and, you know, it's not going to fit. So we put some stuff in the garden bed. Then I started to uh, work on the backyard in this little garden bed section that had nothing in it. And I said, alright oh, we're going to have to put some stuff in there. So I started making room, but I had no tools. I had one garden shovel spade thing, right? And so, you know, I, I moved some of that existing mulch that was there, and I dig a hole with this garden spade, and I put in the leftover seedlings that we had that couldn't fit in the planter box. Well, then we got the bug for gardening, right? And so, you know, I'm watering it every day, and I'm watching this planter box things grow, and just watching them in the sun, and they're like my children almost. And... um so I thought, well, let's go. Let's go buy some more things and plant some more things. So off to Bunnings we go the next weekend. And I said, well, I need some tools if I'm going to plant these things. And so I buy a proper man-sized shovel and uh, a pitchfork, so you know I can I can do that. And some um, some potting mix and some fertilizer and all those sorts of things. And if you read the tags of the things we're planting, it actually tells you to do this, right? It tells you where to put it. It tells you what soil to put it in tells you how to water it, how to fertilize it, and then it says, grow tips, cultivate soil before planting. Protect from snails and birds, replant regularly, right? And so, what happened in this back part of my garden is the first part, I did not cultivate at all. I just dug a little hole and put it in and covered it up. The second section, when I was planting more, I cultivated, right? I, I got the big shovel and I Dug it up, and I got the pitchfork, and I loosened all the gra- uh, all the soil, and then I I threw in some potting mix, which had some nutrients and some wetting agent, and all these things that I didn't know what they did, and then some fertilizer, right? And I put this in the second part of the garden, and I planted. We planted some lettuce in there and some other things as well. And here is my garden, and as you can see, there's a cultivation line. The things on the left were the second part where I cultivated the ground and I, and, I, and I put some effort into getting that soil ready so that it would be good. And on the right, you can see uh, that's where I didn't do it. And um, now, some of those things are different and they grow differently. But you can tell uh, at the top um, line there, they're lettuce. And just the first right one of the red line is also lettuce. And you can see that it's just failing. It's struggling. I, it's going to maybe come up with a couple of, couple of leaves, they're going to be no good, right? It, it is failing. And what's going to probably happen is I'm going to have to tear them out and they're not going to produce anything that will be good. Why do I tell you this story? Because the good soil is fit for growing because somebody cultivated it. And don't we know that our hearts are in desperate need of somebody to cultivate them? Without that cultivation, we would never understand. We would never desire the kingdom of heaven. And the good news is that God is the master cultivator. In Ezekiel thirty-six twenty-six. God says, speaking of the future in the new covenant, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, soft, ready to listen, ready to hear, eager to obey. God is the master cultivator and His specialty is changing hearts. And those of you who have come to believe in Christ, we recognize that God changed our heart. And somewhere along the lines, we heard the good news of the kingdom of God and we understood and we realized that this is more important than anything else in this world, that it is more lovely than anything I could go after on my own. Sometimes we still need some ongoing cultivation though. Some of you might be listening or have been listening and you're wondering, am I one of the three soils at the beginning? And if everyone's honest with themselves, we've all got that in us. We're all prone to wander. I can think of plenty of times in my life where I've had a hard heart or a faint heart or a half-hearted heart. Is that a word, half-hearted heart? That's That's in all of us. All of us are drawn to go towards things that kill the fruit, choke it out. That's in all of us. If you're worried about that, If you feel the conviction about that, I would say, blessed are you, for you have had ears that have heard. And I would say to you that you should ask God to do some more cultivating in your heart. To see that the kingdom is lovely and that it is best. And then you can have deep assurance that He will do that work because He has promised to do so. The deepest assurance of salvation that I have had is when I have been humbled by some of my worst sins. Because it shows that I've been given ears to hear and a heart that understands. How come some people accept and believe the gospel and others don't? Because we always choose that which seems best to us, and God has shown us something so wonderful in His Son, Jesus, that there would be nothing else that would be better for us to go towards than the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven came near and God prepared your heart ready to receive the king. Let's pray. Now, Father, we are humbled. Well, I'm humbled by your love and the way that you have cared for me the way that you keep caring for me, the way you will care for me. And nowhere is that more evident than that you have helped me understand the gospel and to see that it is more beautiful and wonderful than anything else this world could offer. And yet, Lord, I am still prone to wander, and so I ask for myself and for each person here that you would continue to stir our affections for you, cultivate our hearts, to want to know you better, walk with you more closely, and experience the things that the kingdom of God can offer that nothing else can. We love you because you first loved us. In Jesus' name, amen.